Please take out your Bible and turn to John chapter 7. I strongly encourage you to take out your Bible and turn to John chapter 7. You will not get out of this time what you could get out of this time without God's Word open in front of you. So open it up, turn to John chapter 7. We're going to be in verses 10 through 18 this morning, page 893 in the Pew Bible. John 7, 10 through 18. A simple question for you to consider as we begin this morning and throughout this time. What do you think of the teaching of Christ? What do you think of the teaching of the Christ? Your response to the teaching of Jesus determines your response to the person of Jesus, to, to Jesus himself. A lot of people today like the idea of Jesus, and they think that they can take Jesus without taking some of his teaching. They like the person, theoretically, but they don't always like the teaching. Or maybe they would never say that they don't like the teaching, but they demonstrate that they don't actually like the teaching by maybe tweaking some of that teaching or ignoring some of that teaching or just outright denying some of that teaching. What do you think of the teaching of Christ? Because Christ is a teacher. One of the things that attracted to me about Melissa early on was that she was an excellent teacher. That obviously wasn't the first thing. Uh, We met after college in church before we got to know each other. But I've told you before, we had a class together freshman year. I was aware of her. She was not aware of me. So I was obviously first attracted to her by that hair, right? by that beautiful orange glowing hair. Uh, She was cool and I was not. Uh, She was pretty and I was not, so we weren't friends. But she would sometimes wear, do you even know what this is up here? You guys know what John Deere is up here? She would wear this big, bright green John Deere trucker hat. It's like the color of Sam's shirt. And then the orange hair, just in contrast to the green, was just stunning. And then God brought us together later. But more, less superficially and servicey, as I got to know her and her love for Jesus, and I saw how good she was with kids, I loved that she was a teacher, a good teacher. I had never before seen public elementary school kids love their teacher as much as these kids loved Melissa. Honestly, I thought it was a little bit strange at first. I had never loved any of my elementary school teachers like that, but she was a great teacher. I thought I was going to be a teacher of some sort, so I loved that about her. You've probably heard the saying before, those who can't do teach. Probably heard that. That's stupid. right? That's really stupid. Uh, it, it's a shortened uh, line from a George Bernard Shaw play. Uh, Shaw was an Irish playwright, uh, most famous for his play. You may have heard of Pygmalion, or you may have heard of the adaptation into My Fair Lady. It was a famous movie with Audrey Hepburn, a famous uh, musical. It's, it's excellent. Go watch My Fair Lady. But in a less-known play, Man and Superman, Shaw writes, He who can does, he who cannot teaches. That was about 100 years ago. Again, that's... Stupid. I can do preaching. I have often found it very difficult to explain what I do in preaching. I can preach, but when I try and teach how to preach, I often find myself at a loss. I often find teaching to be far more difficult than doing. We know that first and foremost, Jesus came to do. Jesus came to die. Mark 10, 45. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. I've often said before that, that Jesus does and Paul teaches. Yeah, Jesus does, Paul explains what Jesus does. And yeah, that's somewhat true, but that's not entirely accurate. For also Mark 1.38, and Jesus said to them, let us go on to the next towns that I may 
preach, that is teach, there also. For that is why I came. Christ says, I came to teach. Jesus is a teacher. The teacher. And that's what we see in our text this morning. As we're going to pick up and see in verse 14, Jesus began teaching. What do you think of the teaching of Christ? What do you do with the teaching of Christ? And why? Why is it sometimes so difficult for us to receive that teaching and to delight in that teaching and to respond rightly to that perfect teaching? And that's what I want us to consider a bit this morning. Last week was all about the world. Uh, We saw last week uh, just the world's hatred of the word of Christ. So I want us to see again at the beginning why the world rejects the teaching of the Christ. And then also, though, I want us to see why we already saved and called out of the world. Why do we still so struggle sometimes to receive and respond rightly to that teaching? The one question that matters is, what do you think of Christ and what you think of the teaching of Christ will largely answer that question. So four points for us this morning. First, we're going to review a bit and see again that point number one, the world does not understand the Christ. We're going to see that very clearly in our text. The world does not understand the Christ. But then point number two, this is amazing, this is grace, we're going to see that the Christ teaches the world. And here's what we're going to focus on and kind of apply at the end. Well, how do we understand? How do we respond rightly to this teaching? Point number three, we're going to see that understanding Christ's teaching requires obeying God's will. And point number four, understanding Christ's teaching requires seeking God's glory. Apart from these two things, we're not going to understand the teaching. All right, remember, Jesus' brothers have just selfishly tried to get Jesus to go up to the Jewish Feast of Booths. They want him to make a scene, draw a crowd, make a name for himself. Jesus says, nope, I'm not going yet. Let's read. John chapter 7, I'm picking up the story in verse 10. We're going to stop in verse 18. But pay attention. This is what God wants to say to you today. But after his brothers had gone up to the feast, then he, Jesus, also went up, not publicly, but in private. The Jews were looking for him at the feast and saying, where is he? And there was much muttering about him among the people. While some said, "Uh, he's a good man. Others said, no, he is leading the people astray. Yet, for fear of the Jews, no one spoke openly of him. About the middle of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and began teaching. The Jews therefore marveled, saying, How is it that this man has learning when he has never studied? So Jesus answered them, My teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. If anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I am speaking on my own authority. The one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory. But the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true, and in him there is no falsehood. Uh, Let's stop there, let's pray, and let's ask God to help us in this time. Father, we thank you for the teaching of Christ. We thank you for uh, the account of the teaching of Christ that you have given to us this morning. We thank you that you have ordained this snowy day and this crowd to come together and sit under this Word And so we ask that you would work by your spirit through this word. Father, we pray that you would help us to see the glory of the teaching of the Christ. 
We pray that you would give us hearts to desire and to delight and to do the teaching of the Christ. Father, draw us ever closer to him. Father, anyone who is here, who is uh, listening online, if they do not know you, Father, we pray that you would capture them with the teaching of Christ. Give them a heart to see, and to repent, and to believe, and to respond, and to receive, and to love Jesus Christ. Father, save sinners through the preaching of your word. Father, sanctify your people through the preaching of your word. Father, please help me now, I ask in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, point number one, the world does not understand the Christ. These first four verses generally communicate much of what we looked at in detail last week. Uh, last week, for alliteration's sake, meaning to annoy you, right? I alliterate to annoy you. We looked at the relationship between the world and the Word made flesh, Jesus Christ. We saw that the world does not believe in the Word, as Jesus calls his brothers part of that world. Um, and then we read in verse 5 that his own brothers did not even believe in Jesus. And we saw that Jesus uh, calling them the world was hugely insulting and highly offensive because Jesus goes on to say in verse 7 that the world hates him. Right? The very world created by the word made flesh. When that very word enters into the world, the world responds to him in refusal and rejection. Right? This is the clearest revelation of the true nature of the world. It's response to the coming of its own creator. And we saw how we were part of that world. Right? We were dead in our trespasses and sins. We were enemies of God, children of wrath, until grace. Until the grace of God, Jesus Christ appeared bringing our salvation. And so we rightly want to understand the true nature of the world, the wickedness of the world, so that first we can better appreciate the amazing grace that saved us out of that world. And then, in humility and love, serve that world. Relate to that very world rightly by speaking to it of the Christ who is the only hope for that world. And so here in our text again, we start with a look at the nature of the world revealed in how it responds to the Christ. It does not understand him, which shouldn't surprise us. Romans 3.11 tells us that not only is none righteous, but no one understands no one seeks for God. And that's exactly what we see in these opening verses. They don't understand him. And then not only are they not seeking him, uh, but they are seeking to kill the Christ of God. And that's, remember, what this section, this chapter 7 is, is largely about. It's the, the ongoing and escalating conflict that confronts Christ as he confronts the world with his person and his teaching. Verse 10. People are really bothered by verse 10. Oh, why is that? Well, it's because of verse 8. Uh, look at verse 8 again real quick. There Jesus tells his worldly brothers, you go up to the feast. I am not going up to the feast. Verse 10. But after his brothers had gone up to the feast, then he also went up to the feast. Some people really don't like that. Was Jesus lying? Is Jesus, like so many of us, fickle and flighty, you know, quick to change his mind and, and change his plans? Of course not, right? Of course. We know that's not the case. And I don't think it's all that complicated. Jesus is clear. He is not going up to the feast with them. He is not going up to the feast in the way that they want him to go when they want him to go. He's not going publicly. He's not going to make a scene. He's not going to cause a, a premature triumphal entry. He's not going yet. <laughs> but he is going in his own way and timing in God's way 
and timing. So I don't think there's any contradiction there or any problem there at all. And so Jesus goes, and then we get a few verses there in 11 through 13 about the world, uh, the people, and their attitudes and opinion toward Christ. Start in verse 12. There was much muttering about him among the people. We've just seen this same muttering word three times in the last chapter. In 6, 41, 43, and 61. There it was translated as grumbling. It's the same word. This is the noun form of that verb. And this is not a neutral word. This is a negative word. It's not that they're just kind of like generally discussing the identity of Christ. One Greek dictionary says that the word means to murmur or grumble, and then in parentheses, and we love parentheses, then in parentheses it says, generally of smoldering discontent. That's what this murmuring is. It's a discontented, uh, smoldering murmuring. And the experts, I was reading, the experts say that this word is an example of onomatopoeia. You know what onomatopoeia is, right? It's, it's a word that imitates the sound that it represents. Pop! Right, splat, boom. Right, I get how those words are onomatopoeia. This word in Greek is gongudzo. I, I don't know exactly how that's onomatopoeia. I don't really understand what gongudzo. Like, does that sound like muttering? I guess, maybe. But again, they're the experts. I am not. The point is, it's a negative word. It's the word that's used in Acts 6.1 when the Greek widows are being neglected in the food distribution. And it says a complaint arose. Same word. So the crowds, remember, they're going to play an increasingly important role in chapters 7 through 12. And generally, John portrays that crowd negatively. The crowd is not where you want to be. The crowd generally follows Jesus only externally and superficially, generally confused about who he is, misunderstanding who he is, as we see here. Remember, some people say, oh, you know, he's, he's a good man. Yeah, that's actually not a good thing. <laughs> Lots of people today think that Jesus is a good man. That's not good. But surely that's at least a little better than he is leading the people astray. More literally, as the King James translates it, it says he deceives the people. This is, this is no small accusation. According to Jewish law, this was a crime punishable by stoning, by death. Deuteronomy 13 says that a false prophet must die. Because he has taught rebellion against the Lord your God to make you leave the way in which the Lord your God commanded you to walk. He leads the people astray then is about as strong as an accusation as you could make. So, sure, there's probably some variety, range of opinions concerning Jesus among the crowd, but they are overwhelmingly, decidedly negative. But even that's not negative enough, negative enough for the Jews. Look at verse 13. Yet, for fear of the Jews, no one spoke openly of him. And here, by the way, is the best example that we have of how John generally uses the term the Jews. Remember, we're in Jerusalem. We are at a Jewish festival. Everyone there is Jewish. Everyone there is a Jew. So note that, for fear of the Jews, no one, in other words, no other Jews spoke openly of him. So remember, for John, the Jews is a technical term referring specifically to the authorities, to the religious leaders in opposition to Christ. And that's confirmed for us back in verse 11. It was the Jews who were looking for him. 
But the religious leaders, why are they looking for him? We've already seen why. Verse 1, because the Jews were seeking to kill him. And then in verse 12, we get the muttering about him among the people in general. So again, it, it does seem that there's a bit more of a less decisively hostile opinion among the people, but it's still not positive. It's still not good. And the leaders very clearly want him dead. And the crowd, the people are confused. And we know that in just a couple of chapters, they're just going to end up following right in line later. And so, so the point is rising conflict, growing opposition. And this shouldn't surprise us. From the beginning, we were told by old Simeon in Luke chapter 2 that Jesus is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign that is opposed so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. It's an important verse. Your response to the creator of your heart reveals the condition of your heart. Your response to the creator of your heart reveals the condition of your heart. There's nothing more important than your response to Christ. The world does not believe first last week. The world hates last week. This week, the world misunderstands Christ. Things are no different. Things are no better today. J.C. Ryle, a hundred years ago, says that the increasing and open opposition and hatred of the church is but the modern symptoms of an ancient disease. He then goes on, summing up this section nicely. Ryle says, such is the corruption of human nature that Christ is the cause of division among people wherever he is preached. So long as the world stands, some, when they hear of him, will love and some will hate. Some will believe and some will believe not. That deep prophetical saying of his will be continually verified. Think not that I came to send peace on earth. I came not to send peace, but a sword. Christ divides. Ultimately, the world's response to Christ is rooted in its sin and its rebellion against him. But that manifests itself in part in entirely misunderstanding him and missing who he really is in all his goodness and glory. And so how is your understanding of the person and the work of the Christ? Do you devote yourself, your, your time, your energy, your attention, your mind to Christ? We've just seen in great detail for two months that this Christ is the bread of life. He is life itself. Feeding on him, eating and drinking him by faith is life. John 17, 3, knowing God and Jesus Christ is eternal life. Do you know him? Do you understand him? Are you giving yourself to knowing and understanding and loving the one who is life better and better? For the world is characterized by its misunderstanding of the Savior of the world. But amazing good news. Point number two, the Christ teaches the world. Again, how gracious our God is. How patiently and kindly He responds to unbelief and hatred and misunderstanding. If knowing God is eternal life, then there could be nothing kinder than God coming and teaching us about Himself. And that's what we see in verse 14. Look at it. About the middle of the feast. And John's not specific. Uh, maybe this is day three. Maybe this is day four. John just doesn't really tell us. The, the point is that Jesus didn't go with his brothers when they wanted to, wanted him to. But now he goes. He went up into the temple and began teaching. And here is Christ the teacher. 
Here is one of the main things that he came to do. One of the main reasons he came to preach and teach himself. We just read back in chapter 6, verse 59. Jesus said these things, the, the bread of life discourse, in the synagogue as he taught in Capernaum. We'll read in the very next chapter, in chapter 8, verse 20. These words, I am the light of the world. He spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple. Three straight chapters, Jesus teaching, Jesus teaching, Jesus teaching. Jesus was a teacher. And this by itself obviously disproves the silly, those who can do and those who can't teach. No, Jesus does and Jesus teaches. And no one taught like this. You see the response to his teaching in verse 15. The Jews marveled. And that word means to be, to, be, to be amazed, to be astonished. Here, it tells us specifically that they're astonished by the awareness that he's uneducated. In, in the sense, in their terms, right? In the sense that he has not studied in one of the great rabbinical schools, or he, he has not studied under one of the great rabbis of the day. Formal rabbinical training was required to be considered an authority. But there Jesus was teaching. And everyone recognized that there was something unique about this teaching. John doesn't tell us what Jesus was specifically teaching at this time, but what was it generally about Christ's teaching that, that, that stands out and sets it apart? What, what is so unique about the teaching of the Christ? There's a lot of things that we could look at, a lot of things that we could say, but, but two big things kind of come to mind and stand out. And first is implied in our text. First, Jesus' teaching was characterized by authority. First was the authority of the teaching of the Christ. Mark 1.22, the first thing Jesus does after his baptism, temptation, and the calling of his disciples, Mark says he went into Capernaum and immediately, that's Mark's favorite word, and immediately on the Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and was teaching. What was the response to this teaching? Verse 22, and they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. Yet, have you ever been just astonished by the teaching of Jesus? Have you ever been astonished by the authority, the, the weightiness of the teaching of Jesus? Listen, authority is good. Right? We've got to divest our whole culture, just antipathy uh, for authority. Authority is good. We all need authority. Of course it can be abused. Of course we need to be aware of that and resist that. But there's nothing better than good authority rightly used. You were created for good authority. You need good authority. I need good authority. Christ is the perfect authority. He has all authority and he is kind and beneficent with all that authority. The authority of Jesus' teaching sets it apart from everyone else. No one else spoke like this man. But Hold on, you may be thinking. Back to John 7. Isn't Jesus denying that very thing in our text? Look at verse 16. So Jesus answered them, My teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. And we'll focus on 17 in our next point, but let's read it now. If anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I am speaking on my own authority. What is Jesus saying there? Is Jesus denying his own authority? Not at all. Jesus here is again revealing his kindness and compassion. He's revealing how brilliant of a teacher 
He is. A good teacher strives to help his audience hear his message. Jesus here is trying to help his Jewish audience hear his message. Because the Jews rightly understood, uh, the Jewish people, how important and good authority was. And as a result of that, the traditional practice that had developed in Jesus' day was for the rabbis to teach by frequent appeal to other authorities. But if you were to go today and pick up the Jewish Talmud, you would see that this is largely what it is. It's a collection of various rabbis, commentaries, commentary and teaching on the Hebrew Scriptures, on our Old Testament. And at the time of Jesus, much of the teaching of the rabbis consisted largely in quoting other rabbis as your source of authority. It would sort of be like me and Peter getting into John's fight. We both love to read. We both love theology. If we are arguing some matter, Peter might say, well, John Owen says this, to which I might reply, yeah, but, but John Newton says this. And then he follows up with a, but John Edwards says this, but then I parry with a, well, John Calvin says this. Mic drop. Game over. I, I, I win. I have appealed to the ultimate earthly authority. I have won the John's battle. Again, this was generally the pattern of teaching back then. It could become little more than a battle of quotes as you piled up reference after reference to other rabbinical authorities. But Jesus' teaching was completely different. And everyone recognized that. Jesus did not quote any other Jewish rabbinical authorities. And so consider his words in verses 16 and 17 in light of that context. Were he to appeal to no authority, there would be no listening because authority is good. But instead of appealing to some other rabbi as his authority, he appeals to God the Father himself as his authority. No one would have done that. And not just God, but the God, he says, who sent me. Again, that's the ultimate appeal to authority. Jesus is not denying his own authority as God himself. He's appealing to their demand for authority. And he is claiming that his is the highest possible authority. His word is God's word. And no one else would have dared to claim that. It's kind of like what Jesus does in Matthew 5. Like, I think we missed the significance of this. He says, like, you have heard that it was said, but I say to you. (laughs) Who are you, Jesus, to make such a claim? No one would have done that. This is an audacious claim of authority. This is what Jesus, this is what sets Jesus apart from everyone else. Authority. But again, where does that authority come from? Why is it authority that most characterizes his teaching? Well, I think it's because of maybe the second thing that so characterized Jesus' teaching. I wasn't sure how best to put this. Uh, John Stott calls this the utterly egocentric character of Christ's teaching. I like the, the utterly egocentric character of Christ's teaching. That sounds negative to us because our egos are sinful and small and terrible, so we should not be egocentric. That's not the case for Christ. What does that mean, the utterly egocentric character of his teaching? Well, it simply means that Christ, his teaching, is all about himself. Right? The teaching of Christ is completely Christ-centered. Many religious teachers claim to teach about God. Only Christ claims to be God himself teaching. Many religious teachers claim to teach the way. Only Christ claims to be the way. But we've just heard him claim to be the bread of life. He said like, hey, I am spiritual life itself. 
We're about to hear him claim that he is the light of the world. Light is how you see and light is how you live. We're about to hear him claim to be the great I am. These are hugely insane claims. We've already heard him claim that the Bible, I mean, he has said multiple times already, he's about to say it again in the next chapter, hey, all those Hebrew scriptures that you rabbis so claim to know and love, hey, by the way, all that, that's about me. He claims to forgive sins. Your sins are forgiven. When I was in college, freshman year, we had a New Testament course with Bart Ehrman. Bart Ehrman's big thing is that Jesus only claims to be God in the Gospel of John and not in the other three Gospels. And so one of our first exercises was we had to have a debate where one side argued for the deity of Christ from the Synoptic Gospels and one argued against it. How do you argue from the deity of Christ from the Synoptic Gospels? Many ways, Ehrman could not be more wrong, but here is one of the main ways. Your sins are forgiven. That is a claim to deity. Right? If Sam punches VJ, I can't go to Sam and say, hey Sam, I forgive you, Sam. I, I forgive you. No. Right? That doesn't make any sense. VJ would be incensed. VJ has to forgive Sam because VJ is the one who has been sinned against. So when Jesus says, your sins are forgiven, he's saying, I am God. Everyone at that time would have known Psalm 51 4. Against you and you only have I sinned. And that's the case for all sin. All against God. And so Jesus says, I forgive you. That's crazy. Unless it's true. So Jesus taught with all authority. And as God himself, Jesus taught all about himself as God himself. There's no one like this. There is no teaching like this. And so you really need to consider the teaching of the Christ. You won't find anything else like it anywhere. Nothing reads like it. Nothing else carries the weight that it carries because it's from him and it is about him. And again, how kind of him to come and reveal himself to us. Revelation is for the purpose of relationship. We speak to one another. We reveal ourselves to each other for the purpose of relating to each other. And so here's Jesus teaching that we may know him, that we may love him, that we may live. The word of God has come into the world to reveal God to the world. And thus there is nothing more important than understanding this teaching. But again, if, it, if there's so much authority, if it's so good and glorious, if there's nothing else like this teaching, why does the world reject the teaching? Why do we so struggle to accept and delight and live in light of this good and gracious teaching? Listen, that, that's points three and four. Number three, understanding Christ's teaching requires obeying God's will. Back to verse 17. Let me read it again. If anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I am speaking on my own authority. Anyway, what does that mean? Let's start with the translation. Uh, the ESV may not be the best here. I'm not sure why they translated it the way that they did. Where you see if anyone's will, there in English, will is, is a noun, right? The will of a person. But in the Greek, it's a verb. There's a bit of wordplay going on here. The second use of will is the noun thelema, which comes from the word used in the first phrase, thalo. So more literally, the King James translates it, if anyone wills to do his will... 
Or, or the NASB says, if anyone is willing to do his will, he will know. So here is some sort of willing that comes before knowing or some sort of willingness that comes before knowledge. The condition of knowing God's will is the human will to do God's will. Or willing is the condition of knowing. But still, what, what does that mean? That doesn't mean a lot. It's confusing. It doesn't have to be confusing. It doesn't need to be all that complicated. If there's no true desire to do the will of God, the perfectly good will of the perfectly good God, well then, no true knowledge will be found. You know, all Jesus is saying here in this verse is that knowing is ultimately a matter of the heart. Knowing is not merely intellectual, but it is also always moral and volitional. Remember in Scripture, uh, there is no mind-heart distinction. Remember the, the longest distance in the world is the 18 inches between the heart and the head. That doesn't make any sense. That, that, that's dumb. Those aren't two separate things. Scripture never divides things out like we do. Your heart or your mind, whatever you want to call it, it's the same thing. It knows, it feels, and it wills. I mean, even that, those aren't really three separate experiences, but one single comprehensive experience in which kind of all three of these components come together. So truly knowing God involves thinking, right knowing about God. It involves feeling, right affection for God. It involves willing, right desire to obey God. A.W. Pink writes, The fundamental condition for obtaining spiritual knowledge is a genuine heart desire to carry out the revealed will of God in our lives. Wherever the heart is right, God gives the capacity to apprehend his truth. If the heart be not right, what would be the value of knowing God's truth? So all Jesus is saying here, all he's talking about is the importance of your heart in responding rightly to him and his teaching. Maybe John 8 will help clarify this a little bit further. Flip the page over and look at John 8 verse 43. John 8 43, next page. We've been looking at the world's <clears throat> misunderstanding of the Christ. And in 843, Jesus says, why do you not understand what I say? That's the exact same thing. That's, that's exactly what we're talking about. That's the question we're seeking to answer. Look at his answer in verse 44. We keep seeing this. You are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. 45, but because I tell you the truth, you do not believe me. Man, again, hard words from Jesus. Last week, uh, the world hates the word. Do you find that offensive? Well, now here we have, you are of your father, the devil. Do you find that offensive? Right? Christ has hard words. Christ does not respond in the way that we tend to think that he should respond. But note in those verses that Jesus says that they cannot understand his teaching because their will is to do the devil's desire or his will. So ultimately, because of their heart, because of its wickedness and what it wickedly wants, they cannot hear or receive his teaching. Their heart is fundamentally opposed to God. It's against him. And having rejected him in their sin, they're always going to reject his teaching. And so the main question is, how's your heart? 
Right? We asked this a couple of weeks ago. Hey, what, do you, what do you find hard about Jesus? Right? Where does Jesus offend you? Right? For, for what about Jesus or his teaching would you potentially consider leaving? And we saw everyone leave Jesus at the end of chapter 6. Are you truly willing to do his will? That's the condition for knowing his will and understanding his teaching. Where are you unwilling to submit to his will for you right now? Consider your grumbling and your discontentment, and you will see where that unwillingness remains. And that unwillingness will always have an impact on your knowing uh, and loving and experiencing God. Are you willing? This willing to do God's will is a, a humility to see and submit to the teaching of the Christ, even when we don't fully understand, even when it goes against our will, even when we are tempted to find it hard or offensive. This willing heart is a humble heart. One of Augustine's maxims was that whenever he came to anything that he didn't understand in God's word or that he didn't like in God's word, it was to assume that there was something wrong with him and not with God's word and then submit himself uh, to that. Right? Do we have that kind of heart of humility? This willingness to submit and obey. It is here that we will find true understanding. Are you willing to submit to and obey the teaching of the Christ no matter what it is? That's evidence of the kind of heart that Jesus is talking about here. This is why it's so concerning when there's like, you know, this kind of this, this spirit of, you know, this part's good and I like this part. Ah, this thing, no, we're going to kind of go with, no, this, not really this. But, you know, some of these core things are good and studying. That's a bad sign. So first, understanding Christ's teaching requires obeying God's will, requires a willingness to do God's will. But there's more. And Jesus can pack so much into just a couple of short uh, statements. This is the gift that I do not have. This is Look at this next verse. Why don't they have a heart that is willing to do God's will? What else is required? Point number four. Understanding Christ's teaching requires seeking God's glory. Verse 18. The one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory. But the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true. And in him there is no falsehood. Glory. We are back to glory. Again and again. We will always come back to glory. Why? Shorter Catechism. Question one. What is man's chief end? Man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. John Edwards. All that is ever spoken of in the scriptures as an ultimate end of God's works is included in that one phrase, the glory of God. The glory of God is everything. Your chief end, your primary purpose, the reason that you exist is God's glory. Everything would change if we could just learn that one fundamental fact. Everything's chief end. Everything's primary purpose is God's glory. He's the point. He is the center. He is the sun. Glory. Surely you know the Hebrew word by now. Kabod. Right? Weightiness is what it literally means. Weightiness is greatness. It is significance. The sun is the weightiest thing in our solar system. Thus everything else depends upon and revolves around it. That's how it is meant to be for us and everything with God. 
He is the all-glorious one. His glory is his majestic goodness and greatness. He is great and he is glorious. And it is all that he is as, as God himself. His, his infinite in, intrinsic worth, his infinite intrinsic beauty. He is infinitely significant and weighty. And therefore, everything else is dependent upon and revolves around him, including you. This is your purpose. This is your design. This is how you were created to work. This is what you were created to run on. Thus, the reason the world does not understand Christ's teaching and the reason that we sometimes struggle to understand Christ's teaching fully is that we are still so prone to forget that we exist for God's glory. And we are still so quick to live like we exist for our own glory. And this is my fundamental problem. And this is what everyone who has ever lived has ultimately done, except for Christ. This is what every other religious authority, every other teacher has ultimately done, except for Christ. And so he says, you can recognize the authority of my teaching by recognizing the fact that I seek perfectly the glory of God the Father in everything and all that I do. So here is God the Son become man, perfectly doing that which we were designed to do. We were meant to perfectly live for the glory of God. We sinned, we failed, we failed. We all reject the glory of God. We all sought our own silly, sinful glory. Not Christ. Not the God-man. Not the one who, the one man who perfectly glorified God and enjoyed him forever as we were all designed to do. And yet we all failed to do. And so even here, He is serving as our substitute, and he is serving as our savior. He is doing that which we have to do and didn't. And so, I mean, here's the basic idea of this verse. If you live for your own glory, if you seek your own glory, you will not understand or appreciate or submit to the teaching of the Christ who is all about God's glory. It's that simple. Because he does perfectly live for God's glory. If you do not, you will have no desire you will have no understanding of his teaching. This is why the world ultimately misunderstands the Christ. Here's why their will was not to do God's will. Because their will was to do their own will. And that basically means the same thing as their will was to seek their own glory. And remember, we've already seen this back in chapter 5, verse 44, where Jesus says, well, how can you believe? Again, He's saying you can't believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God. You you can't. You cannot believe. You cannot understand if you are living for and seeking self, if you are seeking your own will and glory at the expense of God's will and glory. If you think about what what a searching and scolding word uh, this is. How it calls out and condemns the spirit of self-exaltation that characterizes so much of what so many of us do. Man's chief end, glorify God. 1 Corinthians 10.31, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. How much do we really do to the glory of God compared to how much we really do to the glory of self? And I'm asking myself that always, and I'm not always happy uh, with the answer. How easy is it for me to concern my preaching and teaching with seeking my glory above God's glory? 
And God help me. How sinfully foolish that my wretched heart can use the very thing that is supposed to be uh, specifically about the glory of God and twist and pervert it for the glory of, of me. Okay, why do I run an exercise? Is it my glory or God's? Why do I read so much? Is it my glory or God's? Why am I so concerned with my parenting? Is it my glory or God's? Why do you do all that you do? Is it your glory or God's? Why do you post what you post on social media? Is it for your glory? Is it for God's? Why do you work as hard as you do? Is it for your glory or is it for God's? Why are you so desperate for relationship? Is it your glory or is it God's? Thinking on and on and on and on we could go. We are glory thieves and we don't think it's that big of a deal. We probably scoff at the idea. We probably think it's a little too pious, a little too heavenly minded that we would actually in some way do all to the glory of God as God's word commands. And how foreign is that concept to us? How much of what we all do is really for the purpose of, of drawing attention to ourselves? Honestly, ask yourself that. It's uncomfortable. Your answer will be uncomfortable unless you're just a lot better than me, which you may be. But I mean, honestly, who are you magnifying? Whose glory are you seeking? You should always be asking yourself that in all that you do. And then like me, always desperately clinging to God's grace, repenting of your sinful self-seeking, and then asking for his grace and mercy and help. We know that the world cannot understand Christ or his teaching because of its hatred of him, because of its love of self, and because of its desire for its own glory. So our problem is similar, but to a less desperate degree, only by the grace of God. I was going to talk uh, this morning, at the, this afternoon at the business meeting uh, today about a quote that I can't get away from. I, I read it in a book. I've used it a couple times already, but I got it in a book from Lydia this summer. It's, it's Martin Lloyd-Jones, and, and he says this, and I just it's just still messing with me. And Jones says, uh, The more I try to live this Christian life, and the more I read the New Testament, the more convinced I am that the trouble with most of us is that we have never truly realized what it is to be a Christian. If we only understood what the Christian really is and the position in which he is placed, if we only realized the privilege and the possibilities of that position and above everything, the glorious destiny of everyone who is truly a Christian, oh, then our entire outlook would be completely changed. I'm convinced that many of us have never truly realized what it is to be a Christian. And I know that I'm still sorting it out. Why do we so struggle to understand, love, and live the teaching of the Christ, which is supposedly so good and glorious and perfect and, and perfectly intended for our good? Maybe this is a large part of it. We know the answer is our indwelling sin, but much of that manifests itself as a stubborn insistence on seeking our own will and on our own glory. I was working on this uh, part last night. It was late because the snow and the kids and we just played all day outside. So I was running late. But I was looking back at these last two points and it dawned on me how much of this relates uh, to two of the opening petitions of the Lord's Prayer. We're way too familiar with that prayer. It's powerful. It's dangerous. And maybe that's why we so rarely pray in accordance with the Lord's Prayer. But the first petition is, hallowed be your name. And we don't kind of really know what that means. Honestly, I know what that meant for most of my life. Uh, but that petition is about God's glory. 
It's about his, his name. He is to be set apart utterly and completely, treated as holy, revered, feared, glorified. The first petition is about the glory of God. That's our fourth point. And so in praying that fourth, that first petition, we are praying that he would be glorified. Not us. And so we don't pray that very much. The third petition, your will be done as on earth as it is in heaven. That's our third point. Do you know what you are praying when you actually pray that third petition? That your will not be done when it is out of line with his will, at least, which is a lot of the time. Maybe that's why we don't pray that one very much either. But this is the foundation of not just our prayer life, but of the Christian life as a whole. God's glory, not yours. God's will, not yours. Maybe we struggle to understand, to love, to live the teaching of Christ because we don't struggle to stop seeking our own glory and stop seeking our own will. And again, I'm the chief of sinners here. So again, I ask, how's your heart? What do you think of the teaching of Christ that is all about Christ, that is all about His glory, that is all about God's will? I mean, honestly, ask yourself and answer, whose glory are you primarily seeking? And whose glory is your life generally directed towards? Now, whose will are you primarily pursuing? And the change here comes when we can increasingly begin to see the glory of God and the goodness of his will and then begin to actually desire it and delight in it. And how does that happen? Well, keep in mind verse 17 again. How can any sinner will to do God's will? We can't. And Jesus has just told us that. Just in the last chapter, verse 44, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. He's already told us in 3.7 that we must be born again, that we must be born from above, and that this is the Spirit's work. And so our only hope is God and His grace. And so, good news, this God is very gracious. And we know that He is very gracious. We know that in the very sending of this Son, the very sending of His Son to die in the place of sinners like us so that we could live. We were not willing to do His will. We were not seeking His glory. But His will was to save us. He was seeking to save us. And He was seeking His own glory and the salvation of sinners like us. And so do you understand this teaching? Do you understand that the gospel of grace that is the foundation of your entire life, not just the beginning, but the whole thing. And you come back to it again and again and again. This good news that God has done what you could not do. Death is deserved for all who reject the all good and all glorious God of life. The gospel is that that same God sends his own son to take our place, take our sin and die our death so that we could live. Do you really understand this? Do you delight in this? Do you live in light of this? Are you happy? Are you content and filled with joy because you deserved hell for all eternity? And you get Christ. You get life. You get joy and peace. Christian, if you're struggling with this, listen to 1 Corinthians 2 verse 12. Paul says, Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. Christian, how, how do we understand? It's only by the Spirit. 
Right now, we are studying the Spirit Thursday nights in uh, Bible study. We're studying the Spirit in the whole, the, the Spirit chapter in the whole Bible, Romans chapter 8, shameless plug. Come to Bible study. Study the Spirit uh, about who He is and about what He does. It's the Spirit who helps us. He's the only way that we understand this teaching. Have you asked Him to help you to understand Christ's teaching? Have you asked Him to make you undeniably aware of your need? Have you asked Him to give you insight and understanding into the Word and, and give you a desire and delight for that Word and the Christ of that Word? Have you asked for help? Are you praying that God's name would be hallowed first and foremost in your life? Try it. I don't think we pray that very much. That His will would be done first and foremost um, in your life. I commend to you the Lord's Prayer. He gave it to us uh, for a reason. Ask him. And then ask others. Get, get help. There are godly brothers and sisters around you that both need you and can help you. You will not sufficiently understand the things of God on your own. You, you just won't. Because that's not how God designed it to work. But we do it together. We grow in our understanding together. I struggled to understand Romans 8-2 last week after hours and hours of study. Studying it with my church family helped me greatly. Ask for help. Ask the people of God for help. I'll close with this. Take Psalm 25, which we read earlier, and pray Psalm 25. I love Psalm 25. David says, Make me to know your ways, O Lord. Teach me your paths. Lead me in your truth and teach me. Good and upright is the Lord. Therefore, he instructs sinners in the way. He leads the humble in what is right and he teaches the humble his way. All the paths of the Lord are steadfast love and faithfulness. Christ does. He dies. He rises again so that we can live. But he also teaches. And this is also great evidence of his grace. There was never a teacher like him. His words are the words of eternal life. Do you understand his teaching? Do you understand him? Be willing to do His will. Seek His glory and you will find that He is steadfastly loving and faithful. Let's close uh, with a word of prayer. Father, please help us now. Father, you have given us uh, your Spirit as the one who gives us understanding. And so we ask for that understanding as your Spirit uh, works through your Word. Father, give us hearts that are willing to do your will. Give us hearts that are increasingly desirous to seek and to live for your glory and, and not for our own. Father, forgive us for how prone we are to live for ourselves and love ourselves more than we love you and more than we live for you. Father, continue to use this word and confront us with Christ and his all-consuming uh, claims. Father, show us how good He is and how gracious He is. And by Your Spirit, Father, give us a desire to know Him and to love Him and to follow Him. I pray that we would begin to increasingly understand what it means to glorify You and enjoy You forever. What it means to do all that we do to the glory of God. Father, I know that I really struggle uh, to do that and to understand that. And so we ask Your Spirit. We ask that You would instruct us. We ask that You would teach us the way. Uh, give us humble hearts that are able and willing to receive and respond rightly uh, to your teaching. Father, work now by your spirit through your word, we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.